Welcome to Mountain Whispers Podcast. I'm Tim Stewart, and this is a show exploring the deeper lessons we learn from the outdoors. I chat to interesting people within mountain culture about how they got to where they are, peak experiences, flow states, lessons in between. The aim is to explore how adventure sports and the outdoors help us find meaning and transformation in an increasingly crazy world. Today I chat to the legend that is Brent Martin. Brent is the founder of Riders Eyewear. He founded the company in the 80s in order to create high quality mountain bike eyewear when the sport was in its infancy. And the company has grown with the mountain bike culture. He eventually sold it uh, probably about 10 years ago before starting X Camps, which provides transformational experiences in the backcountry of British Columbia. It was started to stoke souls and awaken spirits. So imagine a retreat in Bali, but you're in the mountains of the Pacific Northwest, and it's an adventure focus rather than yoga that you're getting into. It's pretty, pretty, pretty cool. We chat about that journey. The story of starting riders is has a similar vibe to uh, the story of starting Nike, um, uh, which doc- is documented in, in Shoe Dog, which is a very cool journey. Um, we chat about what got him starting X Camps. We chat about the evolution of, of mountain bike culture, how it evolved from that gritty edge in the, the 80s to where it is today and how that culture at the time is what facilitated its growth. So we chat about the business, we chat about X Camps, but my, my favorite part is probably talking about the modalities of transformation. Uh, it's, it's been referenced a lot, but the book Stealing Fire points to a number of modalities around breath, time spent in nature, adventure sports, festivals, sexuality, substances, all of which when used correctly can provide us with reliable access to ecstatic, cathartic and, and deep community experiences and states. We really dive into that and how Brent is able to use those modalities and the experiences he leads in order to forge a level of group coherence uh, within the communities that he's he's running in these camps, but also how he uses it in its own practice. It's a real deep dive in and riff. So please enjoy it. It's probably one of my favorites. Uh, Brent Martin. So I'm here with Brent Martin. Brent, welcome to Mountain Whispers. Ah, thank you. Thank mm-hmm. you. It's great to be here. Cool. Um, so I get the, the sense you slow down a little bit over, over winter. How, how's your, your winter been so far? Oh, well, I'd like to think I slow down. Uh, not when I get on the hill, though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's been, it's been a really great winter. It started out in Mexico, uh, so I was able to actually drop in pretty good. The weather was unreal. I learned to wing foil, which was a new sport I wanted to take on this year. Um, And then I drove back to Whistler from Baja and I was blessed with this huge dump we had. So it was game on. Uh, I know that when the snow is good like this, you just got to make it happen. Mm -hmm. So I've torched my legs (laughs) uh, and filled my soul with lots of flow, lots of Lots of really good times, ripping through the trees, right to the valley. So yeah, I'm, I've got a pretty big grin on my face right now. Awesome. Filled yeah. yourself with stoke. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd love to start off on, uh, on, on way back, how riders started. And uh, I saw it started the same year as the first Canadian mountain bike championships and that you, you won the first Canadian mountain bike championships. Tell us about that. Well, um, would it be okay to maybe start right from the very beginning? Absolutely. Yeah. Because I think, you know, this riders is a, has a very big part of our, my life and my family's life. But it really started with my dad in 1970. He was uh, an entrepreneur um, looking for really cool things to, to sell. So he would end up going to Japan for about a month and he would 
go to all these trading companies buying anything from you know cool knife sets to KTEL record sorters to sunglasses and in between the partying and the buying he would end up filling these huge wooden crates with um, all this cool stuff and ship it back to Vancouver and I was eight years old at the time and I remember these crates showing up on our doorstep and it was like Christmas every time one showed up and I would was always the one to get to snap that big metal strap and start pulling stuff out and that was the start of my dad's career which ended up focusing on the sunglass part of that he would load up his car with sunglasses and I'd help him and then he'd take off for another month traveling all over uh, central and northern BC selling cool stuff to communities up there and they loved him because he was bringing some pretty sellable neat things into these communities and uh, that's kind of where it all started um, uh, after um, going through high school and born and raised in North Vancouver went to Carson Graham uh, local boy living on the North Shore uh, found this passion for the outdoors you know ever since I was a little kid skiing on Seymour and Grouse Mountain you know through elementary Went to BCIT for Fish and Wildlife, uh, got my degree there. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but that was something that took me outdoors and kept me busy for a couple of years. And next thing you knew, I found myself in Whistler. Um, just before that, though, I met the boys at Deco Bike Shop. And this is where my, my, the beginning of mountain biking really started for myself and actually for Canada. I really give credit to those guys, they, Chaz and Ashley. They would go down to Marin County where they say mountain biking actually was invented and started uh, with the boys down there and they'd bring back these you know fat tire cruiser bikes and mountain bikes and bring them to deep cove they don't they were only open a few hours a day but um i saw i went for a ride with one of these guys i had a beater bike and they were on these new mountain bikes with with 10 speeds and i was blown away and they let me give it up for a run and I said I gotta have one of those and that was in the early 80s uh, and then I moved to Whistler where there was a small crew of us that were you know breaking new trails uh, riding up the mountain this is before the peak chair or cell phones or anything before any really radical equipment was available we had no shocks obviously and we were using old hockey pads when we decided to wear them if we if we wore them and we were doing some big rides. Uh, I look back now and, and remember some of the tracks we did and go, yeah, we were pretty, pretty ballsy. Uh, and then um, I went traveling for a couple years in Europe, uh, took my mountain bike. It was a winter trip following the, um, the uh, White Circus and the Crazy Canucks uh, to different ski resorts. And I had my mountain bike with me. I bought an old Volkswagen van and would pull it out in these ski resorts and ride my mountain bike around. I sure turned a lot of heads, uh, but it was a bike that I could ride, you know, pretty much everywhere. Uh, came back from that trip, regrouped, went to Australia, New Zealand, Asia for a year, again on my bike. This time I didn't buy a car. I was just traveling on my bike and touring around. And near the end of my trip, my dad sent me a letter and he asked if I wanted to come and work for the business. And I, I was kind of dead set on heading back to Whistler and continuing being a ski bum and building log cabins. But I said, Dad, yeah, I'll give it a, I'll give it a shot. You know, you never know. Uh, six months. So I came back and immediately I was into, you know, loading, doing what he was doing, loading my car up, traveling around the Okanagan, looking at doing some, some accounts. Six months turned into 30 years. And that journey took me through a lot of different brands. Um, the one that became most popular and famous was Riders. And in 1986 was the year that it was born. And that was the year that the first Canadian mountain bike championships were put on again back in Deep Cove. It was a four stage race, an uphill, a downhill on the first day. The second day was a criterium. And you got to, you know, I was looking back and I'm thinking there was thousands of people there. And some of them, this is the first time they'd seen mountain bikes. And here were, you know, 50 of us ripping around the, the streets and the trails of Deep Cove. There was a wheelie competition 
and people were cheering, having an awesome time. It was just an awesome little festival. And I really think that that was a big event for when mountain biking started to become popular and, and recognized as this is the legitimate sport rather mm -hmm. than this, you know, bunch of ragtag guys riding here and there. Uh, so, um, yeah, it was an incredible, you know, uh, race, you know, we was neck and neck right to the end. Although I did carry the yellow Jersey for the first three stages and in the last stage, uh, you know, going into the last lap of up old buck and down severed Dick, which is still a sanctioned trail and, and a really awesome loop on Mount Seymour. Uh, I came away with a win and I was riding, uh, a, Paul Brody was at the time uh, a, a frame builder, a local frame builder, and I was riding his first kind of production bike. And he had come out with a design that everybody was really against, and it had a drop tube, which today the top tube slanting down is used in virtually every mountain bike company today. So Paul Brody was actually uh, credited with designing that design, which is still holding true today. So. Yeah, that's wow. just a little bit. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's great. I, um, and the the story of it, your travels with a very early scene in, in Whistler and, and yeah. the likes. Uh, I, I don't know. It, it attracts me because it it feels like that's those areas are uh, are hotbeds of culture, and mm -hmm. and it, it has to be what I'm going to call like a very potent cultural force for it to to catch on. Yeah. Um, I guess, like, what were those gatherings like? What was the scene like in Whistler in the yeah. 80s? I've heard of the scene a, a lot from, from pro snowboarders of the, the scene in the late 90s and, and, and 2000s. What was the scene like in Whistler in the 80s? <laughs> well, it was a, a, definitely a smaller town. Mm -hmm. uh, the village had just been built, and um, there was a small crew of us. Uh, you know, everybody had a nickname, Lumpy... Chizer, Chaz, Tenerb, um, yeah, the list went on. Uh, it always seemed to be the same group of guys would come together. You know, we all had full-time jobs. It wasn't, you know, until later in the 80s and the 90s when the pros started coming around, uh, coming up from the U.S. Some of the bike companies were getting big enough to pay for some athletes, you know, little stipends. It was really nothing, but enough for some of these guys to live on barely anything and still they might get a free bike uh, and ride it for a year and then have to give it back but yeah there was um there was always a ride after work so around three o'clock you know we'd meet and it would usually be like a solid four or five hour ride and we'd meet at um coming back it was the mountain house it was uh, a small restaurant right at the base of whistler and they had uh, all-you-could-eat buffets. And we would just go in there and gorge ourselves, go out, have our ritual little safety meeting, smoke, and then go up on the hill side of Whistler Mountain and basically pass out. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it was just repeat. You know, that seemed, you know, we put some big miles in. And there was this camaraderie, you know, it wasn't so much about, you know, looking good or go how far you went. It was more about coming together and having a good time and helping each other out, looking at our, you know, our new equipment, if we had any. A lot of times we were improvising or making, you know, fenders out of old plastic bottles um, or some new device that might make our seat go up. There was this one called the Height Right, which was a little spring that we put on our on our on our bike and on our um, seat tube and it would we could lower our like a dropper post like a dropper post but it was manual you know okay. you basically had to undo the quick and then push uh, it down and then it would stay and then you could on the fly you could just undo the quick release and it would uh -huh. pop up again yeah so it was a very early stage dropper post there was little things like that there was a blt light company that came out with you know, a water bottle with, uh, with a battery and, and a pretty good light on it. But that allowed us to get out at night and go on some bigger adventures, maybe into the park or into the watershed where we weren't supposed to be. But yeah, it was, uh, it was a really fun time. There was lots of partying in between. And I, I got to put a shout out for our buddy Lumpy, Lumpy Lydell, Jeff Lydell, who was probably the leader of the pack here in Whistler. 
he uh, really knew how to ride a bike. He had lungs of steel and, and leather and legs like that would just not stop. Um, he, pretty much every race that he was in, he would go out so hard and he would either win the race or just totally blow up. <laughs> so he put it all on the line, pretty much 24 seven, you know, partying, racing, just having a good time. And he's really inspired us. Uh, unfortunately he died in avalanche, you know, a couple decades ago and we still honor him with an annual ski run. Uh, and he's got a race and, and a trail up near Pemberton. Beautiful, beautiful man. We miss him so much. Yeah. Uh, I, I imagine in the early stages, was it just hiking trails? When did the trail building movement start? Yeah, it was quite a bit later. You uh -huh. know, back then we were like, there was little trails here. Cut your bars behind nesters was one. The, uh, the trail that links the, um, oh, what's it called here? Ugh. Just links the Creekside to the village, about a thousand feet up. Mm, can't remember the name of it. That one, out of um, uh, so there was a, there was a few trails. We would always go south to Brandywine through Function Junction up through the dump, and then along and out to yeah Brandywine Brandywine Falls. So there was just like. A line there, a line, a line south, a line north, and a couple in between. The Lost Lake trails were non-existent. Um, so yeah, there were really few trails back then. But you know, we, that's where we learned to ride technical. You mm -hmm. know, and also on the North Shore, there was we were riding the uh, the hiking trails, the mm -hmm. Baden Powell. There was the Mosquito Creek Trail. There was some races there up uh, up on Seymour. There was a few trails, but yeah, it was no marked trails. A there was a, a little bit of conflict, but surprisingly not that much. Sure. Yeah. You know, it was all pretty friendly. We, there wasn't a lot of us, so it wasn't, you know, mm -hmm. yeah, big deal. Mm -hmm. And so from that culture, how, how was Riders born? Well, I, I recognized at the time Oakley had just come out with their pilot. And this was a beautiful sunglass that a lot of the pros were wearing, especially made famous more in the triathlon arena an Ironman. So I, knowing my dad was in the sunglass business, I said, hey, you know, I, I think that I could come out with a decent polycarbonate safety lens, stylish sunglass at a m much more affordable price that all my dirtbag buddies could afford. And if they scratched them, it didn't break the bank. You could just get another pair. So I just, you know, went to the family business and said, hey, I'd like to start a a biking line and my dad and I were underneath the stairs of the warehouse one day and I think he came up with the name and at that time we were selling a brand called Bugaboos which was named after the Bugaboos mountain range and it was a a series of glass lens kind of Varney look-alike copies uh, but really high quality and we sold them about you know pretty much all over BC and Alberta so I just tagged on to that business, um, business channel and provided a biking glass. And it just took off from there. You know, it was really um, hit the mark. Yeah. Have you read Shoe Dog by Phil Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it yeah. seems uh, similar. Were you, um, did, did you get to travel along to Japan for the, like? Oh, definitely, yeah. Uh -huh. No, that was, became part of the, the learning curve with my dad he kind of put me under my his wing and would take me to Japan production moved south to China and then to Taiwan and then you know we did a couple little things in Korea but you know that there there was a big relationships we had over there with with families that ran factories and we we design our own product and they would make it and you know we were over there two or three times a year so okay. and then you know was all my dad I know where I get my kind of fun, wanted to have a good time kind of trait is, you know, in between business, we always had a, had a good time. So we were going to onsens in Japan or we'd do a side trip down to Thailand to uh, Phuket uh, or Bali or, yeah. So, yeah, mm -hmm. it, was, it was pretty special being able to get introduced to that, 
the business and the culture from from that perspective in Asia, I, I really really uh, got a lot from that. Mm-hmm. Is that what I loved about Shoe Duck, which is this, the story of Nike for those not aware, um, is they were just figuring it out as they they went. Yeah. Was that like how was the the product design and testing phase in the, the early years? Of the early, race? yeah, very simple. Uh, although you know, making a sunglass is not that simple. But as far as when you're in the business, it wasn't like we were doing at that time many new innovations other than some lens um, materials uh, you know we had to have safety impact resistance and so there was quite a bit of time spent on the lens uh, but the factories had designers that I would work with at the beginning you know we weren't big enough to afford our own designers we were later on in the the, the growth of riders I had a whole team that would you know we would do 3d modeling and 3D printing and you know when I when I finally left so there was you know a big transition of that product development process from when the business started in 1986 yeah mm-hmm. no something that always like uh, makes me wonder is uh, how can the can you explain how Oakley's and, and Riders uh, the like the key difference between that and a $10 pair of sunglasses obviously there's like massive quality difference but ultimately they're both just plastic well like when you say like a pair of sunglasses for 250 dollars yeah what goes into that cost yeah well a lot of marketing uh-huh. <laughs> you know the oakley like jim Gennard, who created oakley he pretty much invented sports marketing huh. yeah like his his whole um model was to align himself and a very authentic guy, like he would build relationships with, you know, some of these athletes that was, you know, right, like very personal and he really cared about them and he would pay them well. And they were high profile, uh, you know, like Tiger Woods, Michael Jordan, you know, I can't remember exactly who they all were at the time, but he, um, he, he got the, he was the first guy to really see the benefits of sponsoring athletes like really spawn like really getting under them do you know i remember yeah. in andre agassi's book yeah. he, in some tournament he was so hung over one day he had to play in sunglasses he yeah. picked up a pair of oakley's he a photo ended up on the cover of sports magazine and whoever that founder was bought him a new car just like out of nowhere yeah. he had a car on his doorstep yeah 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 that that would have been jim Gennard. Uh-huh. yeah no way huh. yeah but so the difference is, you know, obviously there's a bigger infrastructure and there's marketing and, and, but I would say, you know, there is little details in the manufacturing process that do make a difference. Is it enough for the average person to notice? No. And that's kind of where I fit in. You know, I was actually going to the fact, there was no middlemen. I was actually there in the factories negotiating prices, sometimes even helping them, you know, put these things together, design it. And then, you know, we were, my dad was a really good negotiator and was able to, you know, reduce our costs. And that, you know, we always felt like we had to hit a price that, you know, was at least half, if not less of what Oakley was. And, and uh, you know, I was really proud of the quality we were able to produce, you know. It, uh, yeah, it, it, it performed, um, you know the 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 and again there's there's the initial injection plastic that comes out of a mold but then there's the finishing there's the coatings that go on the lens there's the the packaging uh you know it all adds up and then you've got displays in the stores and then you've got reps that you got to pay to go service so there's just a lot of moving parts and you know if oakley you know based in southern cal expenses high you know we were um, kind of the little guys trying to keep the cost down. Mm. Yeah. Mm. In the 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 process, the the thirty five it was thirty five years, right? That, of, of writers um, from start to, to selling thirty, um, or, or the thirty years yeah. as it uh, I guess evolved with the the culture of of outdoor sports of of mountain biking of of mountaineering of rock climbing. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, what was it like? 
running a business, which I, I bet is, is super stressful, but being balanced with the fact that it's like an industry you're passionate about? Well, that's the only, you know, I didn't really know it at the time, but for me to be engaged in something, I got to have fun. And that's why I created Riders is that it fit with the sports and the people that I love to hang out with. So, yeah, I, I guess you've got to have fun in, in your role. Um, what were the most character building moments in that time uh, doing Riders and, mm. and growing Riders? Yeah, uh, probably the intense travel while I was having a, a family, raising a family, you know, I was married to my high school sweetheart and we had two kids and trying to grow and build a company and a brand, take care of people with actually no, I had no formal education on running a business. You know, I had fish and wildlife and experience traveling, but I had a dad who was pretty good at, you know, making it happen. Uh, no, not much tech, a lot of just figuring it out and hard work. So my, one of the biggest character thing was being able to balance that for so long through the ups and downs of the market, retailers going bankrupt, not paying, uh, the people, we had 150 staff at our highest. So managing teams, um, there's a lot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I would say the biggest, um, was just being able to keep my health in check through all of that and not lose it. Now I did end up taking a sabbatical for a year cause I was on the edge. And fortunately I had a unbelievable partner, my sister who stepped in to lead the company while I was away. And that gave me an opportunity. And I've written about this in a book actually came out last year, uh, called yeah, ignite, um, your inner spirit. And, that sabbatical, that break really launched me into being able to take the company to a point where a big company wanted to buy it because mm -hmm. it was not going that way. With all the effort and the outside consulting and everything, our business was, after 25 years, was pretty flat and going down. The market had changed so much and we hadn't adapted enough and we were just in it. You know, family business, love the people that work for us, love taking care of them. It got a little bit complacent and we were riding on our laurels for too long. And then, so when I took a break for a year, went traveling with my family for four months and, and a day and, and did some great adventures and came back with this clear mind and saw the company in a completely different light. And I saw what was missing in the leadership and and then where we were going and how we were innovating and how the creativity so i came back and ended up buying my sister and my dad out of the company and um for, for two years completely changed the marketing the product line and and turned it around um, and i won't give credit to myself it was a whole team actually there's a story i'd like to tell about that because there was a real pivotal moment when i bought the company um, and I had to mortgage my house to pay, pay everybody off. Uh, I organized a party and I call it the get stoked party. And I invited everybody to come to the party in a costume or however they like it in a way that showed their stoke. And so tunes were going, we were dancing, people were really light. And then I just had this little talk with everybody. I said, Hey, look, I just, we've been through a lot. And you've got us here and it's, it's good. The company's financially, you know, on the edge, but I believe in it and I believe in you. This is going to be a new company and we need to do whatever it takes to turn this around. Now I'm going to give everybody an offer right now. If you want to be a part of that team and you've got to give me your word that you're going to do whatever it takes to make this happen then come on over, over here on this side of the, the line. I put a little kind of line on the carpet. And if you don't, I will totally take care of you. I will 
find a way to give you a little package. I will find you a job that you love and did no hard feelings at all. And in that moment, half the people came over. I ended up having 50% turnover in the company because of that one conversation. And that was the start of me rebuilding it with the people who really wanted to dig in and make it happen. And I could actually have a conversation with them from that point on to say, we got to do whatever it takes. So you got to stay late. You got, we got to come up with a new idea. We got to do this. And that, that was a pretty um, powerful conversation that turned things around. Wow. It's ballsy as well because losing, like risking that much, it creates a lot of headaches as well, but it's like a, a long-term play. Oh yeah. And there was people that came over that ended up, that said that, but they weren't actually willing to. Uh -huh. And so there, there was another layer that mm -hmm. peeled away and that was the tough one. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. But on the other side, it was, it felt really good at the time. It was really hard. Like you said. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. But it worked out. You were able to, to, to sell. And then, um, from it was, was born, uh, X camps. Um, do you want to share before, uh, do you want to describe X camps and then share how they were born? Yeah. Okay. Um, so X camp is a, uh, a backcountry call it a little bit spiritual experience where we stoke souls and awaken spirits and we bring in um, experts in different uh, modalities so uh, we'll bring groups up into the mountains or to a lake or we've got a plan to do one in Baja and um, yeah really just we don't really say teach we share experiences so we'll go on a big backcountry ski day, come back, we'll circle up and there'll be some really nice, beautiful sharing, which will turn into a healing circle. Uh, we'll offer um, some meditation, some yoga, some cold water submersion, some Wim Hof breathing. Uh, you know, we've even for special groups brought in some plant medicines at the right time. Uh, so it's a, an experience that Really, I got inspired by Jamie Wheel and his book, Stealing Fire, and his flow camp that I attended about five years ago, where he brought together a lot of these different modalities in a similar way. And I'm just running smaller versions of that in my own, my own flavor. Mm -hmm. And we've been doing it for about three years now, and it's, it's been amazing. And it really came out of my pledge to myself when I sold the business because I realized, you know, I wasn't really a businessman that wanted to sell a bunch of stuff to people. I'm more about experiences and I made a pledge to myself to not do anything that I'm completely stoked about. And so that filter led me to pulling together all these things that I've done my yoga teacher training, some breath training. You know, I, I love hearing guys like Wim Hof and Jamie who love different hacks to tapping into flow and and then mixing it in with you know adventure and taking people to cool places that were so blessed in the Sea to Sky Corridor and I like to go up in the Chilcoltons as well so mm -hmm. yeah and it's been a mix most camps are they always work out with the perfect groups between 10 and 20 people and it's usually really close to 50% men, 50% women. Although last year we did smaller groups and they ended up being all men and all women. So mm -hmm. yeah, I just really go with the flow and you know, I'm not a, you know, out trying to sell spots in, in, in the camp. They just kind of people come my way and they just kind of evolve and open up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, so much of, um, when you're designing transformational experiences, um, the modalities like breath work, like yoga, like mindfulness, like plant medicines, like spending time outdoors, mm -hmm. that they provide the, the vehicles for transformation. That, that's part of why, why I started this, this podcast and exploring these modalities. Mm -hmm. um, but the container for them to take place is the experience. Yeah. Um, how, how do you go about designing an experience to allow that? Yeah. Well, first I find uh, 
a location, you know, with sleeping accommodation. And it doesn't have to be like, I don't go to like high end resorts. It's mostly it's backcountry. So my, one of my things is no, um, internet or Wi-Fi or cell connection even. So that's number one, because I believe you got to get disconnected from your, you know, the digital distractions that we're all so surrounded by these days. And they're at least three, four, five days long. I have a vision for a month long one, but, you know, it takes time to slow down and and connect. So that's kind of number one. Uh, then I look, you know, how where in this corridor... Uh, you know, I've been to Journeyman Lodge, you know, like I said, I've been up in the Chilcoltons where I have a camp called Sky Camp, which I've been going back to. I just love it there. We fly out of Whistler. And uh, so that's part of the experience is a float plane ride to Crystal Lake up in the Chilcoltons. And then we're left in the middle of nowhere on our own in a beautiful, you know, call it rustic little camp with comfortable beds and a little cooking cabin where we can make really good food so those are and it's got to have a sauna and a body of cold water and we've got a lake and a beautiful wood-fired sauna there so we can do lots of work and uh, and then I bring up my call them all my toys my neuro toys for measuring brain waves um, measuring um, you know, body temperature. We're work. We work with some neuroscientists that that have like they're from uh, uh, Surrey. Uh, Dr. Jan Venter and Ryan Darcy, who like are world-renowned uh, functional medicine doctor and a neuroscientist. And I really hand that part over to them, and they wow us with all sorts of research that they've done and tech. And I actually met them at Jamie Wheels Flow Camp. And they've been supporters and partners in these for since then. So, yeah, every time I talk to them and they're, they're giving me something new to bring up, uh, you know, Muses, which is a pretty popular one you can buy online to measure, you know, brain waves, calm state, which I love before and after the camp. Uh, so anyways, I have lots of toys. And then I ha also try to provide a, a, a rope um, or some sort of obstacle that will put people out of their comfort zone mm -hmm. and you know totally safe however it feels a little edgy for some people we've done Tyrolean traverses we're working on some other treetop um, maneuvers that will definitely get people out of their comfort zones not unlike Jamie Wheel's looping swing which I love and I would love to have one of those <laughs> yeah, with the, yeah. The, the training that I did in, in 2020 they didn't have the looping swing they had yeah. the, the the gyro one. Oh yeah we thought that was yeah. fun but yeah. it wasn't the looping swing no the, sure. his loop it's a bit of a setup so yeah. I don't think he takes it everywhere no, but yeah. yeah I would love to have one of those in the village mm -hmm. and just get introduce people to that because it is a, it is it, it covers a lot of things mm. yeah God, the market would be there. How oh, totally. should have built that by now. I know. Yeah. Well, let's do it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I'm thinking about the experience, though. The, yeah. Um, the, I, had, um, I had a depth psychotherapist uh, on, uh, in one of the early episodes, and he talks about the stages of initiation. And, and um, in, in, in an initiatory experience, you're leaving the old self behind. Yeah. And... Um, I almost feel like any of these in-depth camps, you have to have something really challenging in order to provide that that moment of, of transformation. Yeah, uh, is that where the like the like the ropes course or something comes in? It or? really depends on the person. You know, uh -huh. some people it's cold water. Mm -hmm. You know, it's as simple as that. You know, them breaking through the fear of you know we wake up at six in the morning and our camps are in September. It's cold up there. And we're meeting out on the dock, doing some calisthenics and movement before we jump in the water. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that gets people, their teeth chattering and they're going. Some people, uh, it might be the Tyrolean Traverse. Uh, you know, lately the medicine journeys have been, like, taking things to the next level. Uh -huh. What medicine, uh, if you don't mind? Um, psilocybin uh -huh. is the main one. Uh, mm -hmm. My shaman 
will have a variety of different other things, but it's very uh, light, introductory. It's most, we stack breath. Uh, my guy is so experienced with this. So we really measure the group. Sometimes we don't do it. You know, uh -huh. it's just not, doesn't feel appropriate. So we really just measure that out. We have conversations with people before they come to the camp. You know, some are all in, some are I don't know, some are no. Uh, we really like to keep it inclusive. So, yeah, it's, mm -hmm. you know, my style is to not rush in with a plan for every camp. It's really, you know, let's get in there. Let's drop in together. Let's slow down. Let's go for some hikes. Let's cross this log across this river where, you know, if you fall in, you're going to, you know, I, I do rope it if it's deadly, but you're going to get wet and you're going to be cold and you're going to be freaking scared. So we, we try and layer that in uh, just to get to know where people are at and have them move through some of these discomfort, you know, challenging things, which metaphorically layers right into their life. You know, you break through something that scared you out at the camp you're going to have a breakthrough at home with something that you might might have been stopped at. So, yeah, because yeah. often it's the the same hang-up stopping you at the camp yeah. from breaking through is the same hang-up when you get back to, yeah. to real life. Yeah. Um, do you ever turn people away because they're not on the same page? Yeah. With, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Not often. You know, I think, you know, we put it out in our website. I have conversations. I've had people sign up and then two weeks later say, no, nah, I don't think so. Mm -hmm. you know and I could sense so you know it's it's there's no pressure it's really just an invitation to come and you know hang out with some cool people and push your limits a little bit and drop in slow down sometimes that's the hardest thing mm -hmm. you know just being silent in in a on a hike and then we stop for half an hour and meditate yeah, I've got some I've got this really cool instrument that I can clip onto a tree or or a bush and it it measures the 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 resonance of it and plays music what of no. the, yeah. how does that work oh these these tech monks in, in Italy made this and it's it just it's a very sensitive machine that you put one probe down on the roots and one on a leaf and it measures the electrical current running through the plant and plays this beautiful music and actually when we meditate you you just drop in together with the i've had people just break down crying because they feel so connected to the tree that yeah. is the most beautiful thing yeah what what, what instruments is the music to be playing well you can change it uh -huh. it could be piano or guitar or instrumental like there's a few settings so you can mm -hmm. mix and, it up and i and i'm just trying to understand what's going on in the plant is that is like anything living has some electromagnetic frequency? How yeah. does that work? Well, there's a, you know, like, especially in the mycelium that runs through the forest bottom, it's like they say, well, there's a lot of research happening on that now. Paul Stamets, in his recent movie, Fabulous Fungi, you know, you can actually see this, um, this web of, um, call it veins, mycelium that runs through the forest that connects all the trees and all the plants. And they actually help each other out. You know, if one tree is covered by in the canopy, it doesn't get any sun, that big tree will be sending nutrients underneath to that little tree to help it grow. And yeah, there's this exchange of chemicals and nutrients happening that, you know, we don't even see. Most people, like I say myself, you know, you don't even know this is going on. As you slow down and start dropping in and learning about this stuff, you start connecting with the trees and you can actually feel it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Because it's, it's funny. What, uh, that resonates with me a lot because I, um, I, I'm coming from a place where I was radically skeptic of everything that like, science couldn't without a doubt prove. And it took mm. actually my first time taking acid to, to blow the doors open to there's a whole lot that's... Yeah. going on that's more than what scientific method can prove mm -hmm. and so I, i've been reading in reading uh wilderness medicine or or, or nature-based practices um specifically from bill plock and he's, he uh, they talk about how you can going into nature and in, with the intention of communing with nature yeah. and and when your senses grow sharper 
you can suddenly feel all the everything else that there is to go on yeah. and it's been a process of me very slowly opening myself up to to, to hearing those things yeah. and i feel like that technology would help bring me over the edge yeah. it's like there's there's this deep truth within you of knowing that yeah. the nature around you is alive yeah. and uh in, in order to pass through that radical skepticism that modern society we've been conditioned to of, of that uh, only that which is human that's talking to us that's proven is, is real, you need a tool that has electromagnetic frequencies converting it into sound to tell you that it's alive. Yeah, into one of our senses Yeah, on this frequency because yeah. we're multidimensional and we're living on the very bottom of it. Like the... The power and the, the 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 amount of things that we can create, we just you and we've all heard this. You know, we're just not reaching full potential. Uh, as you start, and we try and provide these experiences at X Camp, or we do. You know, uh, and everybody's at different levels. So if it's the plant uh, medicine or the music of the trees, or just being still and and just feeling the wind and the eagle that flew over and you'll have a vision of your past father you know like there's these messages that come through when you're in these environments that we don't get when we're in this busy life that we lead down here on planet earth in the cities and on concrete so yeah, yeah. wow because because um, that makes me think that the, so the same way that um, like the that, that tool can convert something that we know is true into just another, uh, another form to speak to our senses. In this case, it's beautiful music mm -hmm. for us to hear. I, I think of um, when I'm hiking and I want to tune in a little bit more, a, a, a small dose of psilocybin, something like between 200 and 400 micrograms, where it's just like a kiss of psychoactiveness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it also allows me to open up. Yeah. And it's probably to the same degree like it's a like on par modality as turning electromagnetic frequencies into yeah. sound well you're opening up near new neural pathways mm. in your brain that allow you to feel at it or see or touch or taste uh, at another level mm. yeah huh yeah that's awesome yeah so we'll play around and we're always experimenting stacking different things i you know whether it's cold water and the sauna with music and we we have these special incense god incense you know mixed with a little bit of little little bit of thc you can have an out-of-body experience in a sauna just with a few little things um to get on their own they're fine you know you'll get something but when you start bringing these few things together with some body work you know mm. it could be transformational yeah what especially when you're in the middle of nowhere you know you got no distractions like you're able to really drop in yeah yeah and that the middle of nowhere also allows uh makes it an extra way to 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 get away from the surface level bullshit that's stopping you from that transformation yeah beforehand yeah and then you know you'll this is you know at x camp i i, I love adventure so we'll in the mornings after our morning routine we'll go for a big hike you know, we'll get her done. We'll climb a peak. We'll ski a big line. Uh, we'll, you know, just just push ourselves and get some fun and get some flow in things that we love and we know well. And then we'll come back and do the work that might be new. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's a nice blend, you know, something familiar and then something new. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. Let's move on to the... Uh, oh, actually, no. What I was going to ask is, what, what's that incense? You said the, a specific kind of incense that you put in the soil. Yeah, it's called... I heard about it from Ben Greenfield. Really? Yeah. yeah. And he mentioned that him and his wife, um, it's called... Um, I'm pretty sure it's God's incense. Uh -huh. And it's a combination of these different herbs and, and scents that is blended. And actually, Jesus, it was... It, it goes very f way back this this particular scent and uh yeah there's a company down in washington that 
that makes it. So when Ben mentioned it, the experience that he had with his wife in the sauna, I said, I got to get some of that. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how I roll. You know, if I, if there's something small and, or, you know, some, not so much big, but little things like that can really make a, a big difference. Uh, especially, you know, a guy like Ben, who's <laughs> at the forefront of, you know, testing things yeah. and different hacks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that you're right though in that the, the little things that, that can move the needle so much. Yeah. Like the, it, especially uh, like nowadays is uh, in the psychedelic renaissance, everyone's talking about the healing modalities of, uh, of psychedelics. There's like a cure-all. Yeah. But really it's just one of many modalities. Yeah. Like and, and, and something like incense can have just as much of an impact. Oh, right? yeah. Yeah, smell. Like we're trying to activate all the senses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So smell, you know, the touch, um, taste, uh, you know, the, 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 just the, the feeling, you know, the vibe, the, the music, it, huge. You know, I spent a lot of time on, color, you know, curating uh, different tracks for different times of the day and different events. We do a lot of flow um, one of the my co-partners in this guy he is a jedi and he he has these staffs so teach you how to swirl and twist and spin staffs like you've never seen and you know you start getting some of those moves down and it's it's super fun and you feel the flow and yeah so yeah there's a lot there's tons of different things yeah Mm So, so talking about, we've talked about a, a couple of modalities already. What, um, what does your practice look like? J- Jamie Will, he talks a lot about um, hedonic calendaring. Yeah. That you're, you're calendaring or you're, you're intentionally stacking and designing experiences to be able to access this flow and access this transformation. Yeah. But at the same time, the calendaring aspect is to uh, ensure that you... Uh, you're not underdoing the vital hard practices, which is often things like meditation and movement and, and stillness, and, but more importantly, not overdoing the most volatile ones, which yeah. is like high dose stuff. Yeah. How, how, do you, how do you work that into your practice? Yeah, well, I have a daily meditation movement practice in the morning with some breath work. Usually lasts about an hour, hour and a half. Uh, I'm trying to get in cold water every day now uh, with a sauna or a hot tub, uh, weekly, I got to be out with the boys ripping, whether that's on a mountain bike or on the mountain. So that's my weekly, uh, kind of get out and go activity with, with my brothers and we go pretty hard monthly. Uh, it's a date with my wife. So, and might be something with the family, but I really try and spend some time with my wife, Martina, Quarterly, you know, there's when the medicine journeys come in. So every quarter, there's usually a, you know, a, a pretty significant journey right now. That's what I plan for this year. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And then yearly, there'd be a big trip, like driving to Baja or, mm-hmm. you know, wherever, you know, it might be in BC or Canada the next mm-hmm. year. This usually like a month long trip. Or yeah. What are those? Yeah. Like? Yeah. yeah. A month or two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are your camps all year round or is it really just the way it books up yeah it's been all year it's been all year so i have a winter camp and a summer fall camp i've had summer camps and fall camps it's really just going with the, with everything that's going on in the world right now you know i don't have anything planned i do some corporate um camps or small um executive team events might be a half day or a full day which are an exception to my my camps uh, and then I do a, a small um, online, call it X practice, uh, once, sometimes twice a week. And that's where we come together, a small group of us, uh, where we do a little bit of breath work together and movement online. And then we share with each other a, a task or a project that we're working on. And I put a timer on for 25 minutes and you put your headphones on in your house and you do whatever you can to stay focused on that one thing. It might be doing your taxes. It might be um, you know, writing that letter to your dad that you've been procrastinating on 
or making that phone call, you know, that you've been dreading. So everybody gets an opportunity to kind of wake up in the morning and they come to this having had a cold shower. So, and they come with a cup of coffee so they don't have to run away and get that. And then we go, we do our movement meditation and then we do our work sprints and we do two of those and then we're complete. It's an hour and a half and you've kickstarted your day and the results we've been doing it for about a year are unbelievable. People said when that's going on, their whole day changes. The, the trajectory of it is set and you're, you know, getting, doing something for your body. So you're feeling good. You're tapping in and feeling what your day ahead's going to be. And you got some big shit out of the way. So mm -hmm. yeah, those have been really effective. Yeah. Do you distinguish, uh, uh, meditation from breath work when it's like a morning stillness practice? I, I kind of see them similar mm -hmm. uh, in, I actually get, I, I find breath work a little bit easier for me to drop in, you know, I'm, you know, call it ADD whatever. My mind is busy most of the time. So the breath work is usually done before I meditate the official meditation. I like guided meditations. So when people are talking to me, although I'm starting to slow that down and go silent, more, more of a gap, like 15, 20, 25 minutes of just silence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I ask cause I, uh, I've, I almost have this like purest tendency of, of feeling like meditation is the best one. And if it, if, if it's not working for me, it's because I'm not doing it enough or not doing it long enough. But yeah. I, I sometimes feel like breath work is probably, it, it's sometimes a more effective means to still the mind. Yeah. You know? There's, um, a process called the, um, the presence process. And uh, it's a, a three month program. You do it on your own. I've created a group to do it, but you breathe twice a day for 15 minutes in the morning at night. And it's a very simple breath. You're on your own. You basically just breathe, you get conscious to your breath in and out. And you can do it through your nose, your mouth. You just sit somewhere, be quiet and just breathe for 15 minutes. And, and get be conscious to it. And he runs you through the weeks and the transformation that happens in that three months is phenomenal. Just from those two little breathing sessions and reading a chapter a week, which is, it's not much, it's, it's very short, but his process, it was how I really got connected to my inner child, of the inner child work. And um, yeah, I can't say enough about that. Michael Brown. Yeah. Michael Brown. Michael Brown, you know the, the presence process. The presence process. Yeah. Cool. And there's YouTubes and, but I highly mm -hmm. recommend that. I've done it three times and it's been just every time you do it, it just gets to the next level. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. We've talked about it a lot. I, uh, uh, is there anything else in terms of y your journey and, and relationship you've had with the outdoors and your, uh, in your entrepreneurship journey is in your spiritual journey and the communities you're building. Is there anything else um, that you'd like to raise that has been instrumental? Well, I don't think I'm alone. I think there's a lot of change happening now. And, you know, I'll speak probably for a lot of people. We're trying to figure out, you know, who are, who's our tribe. <laughs> uh, at least it's, it's big for me right now. I know there's so many people out there I love and adore. And I want to stay connected to everybody. However, there's some things happening that, you know, maybe, you know, with some discernment and, you know, it's just maybe not the best thing of my, you know, to put effort into creating that relationship. I'm, you know, I love everybody and, but I have this need to go deeper right now uh, in with a group of people. And so I guess to answer your question, you know, I'm staying really open right now and just sending lots of love and light out there and seeing who is showing up. It's kind of like how, you, you know, yeah. you showed up. Uh, you know, these people that have found that what I'm doing and I've found what they're doing is something, I don't know, there's a heart connection. Uh, it's less about, you know, the competition and oh, you did that and I got to do this. It's more about coming together and okay, what can we create? 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And what can we share? So thanks for the opportunity to let me share. I'm not, it's not one of my biggest <laughs> things, you know, I, I, but I've really enjoyed this conversation. No, this is, so thank you. No, this is incredible. There's, there's, there's so much to learn from, yeah, from your journey and, and yeah, and also in terms of uh, how we could show up. Like you said, the world's changing a lot. And, yeah. and I think uh, Jamie's onto something when he, when he talks about the modalities to allow us to level up and bring our best self and yeah. and yeah you're demonstrating and you're you're putting on these spaces so. awesome this has been so great to chat thanks bro thanks brother thank you for listening that was a doozy of an episode one of my favorites yet i started this podcast out of an intuition that there's this level of transformation available from the time we spend outdoors and you can create an intentional practice out of it and and Brent's life and the organization he's creating in X camps is absolutely facilitating that experience. I'm definitely going to try and check it out. Uh, you can find more of him at xcamp.ca. That's in the show, uh, the show notes there. If you enjoyed this episode, please do the follow, subscribe, rate thing on Spotify and, and Apple Podcasts. And if you want to reach me, I've linked my Instagram um, in the show notes there too. Thanks. Much love.